Welcome to the podcast, Creating the Life You Want, a monthly podcast discussing different components and topics of designing, manifesting, and building the happy, healthy, purposeful life of your dreams. Hosted by Dr. Sonia M. Kelly, licensed clinical psychologist, author, spiritual healer, and founder of Golden Temple Meditations in Katati, California. Each month, Dr. Kelly will interview a guest on how they have created the life they want, engage in conversations with guests on a particular topic related to living one's dream life, or share her knowledge, insights, and personal experiences surrounding a particular component of a consciously designed life. Dr. Kelly can be reached via her website, www.goldentemplemeditations.com or by email at goldentemplemeditations at gmail.com. Today, our guest is a mechanical engineer, inventor, rocket scientist. He graduated from Purdue University with a bachelor's degree and master's degree in mechanical engineering in 1977. During his college years, he lived in Sigma Alpha fraternity. His first job outside of school was working for General Dynamics in Pomona, California on tactical missiles. While working at General Dynamics as a hobby, he and a friend from work built three world speed record holding human powered vehicles called vectors. These were basically streamlined tricycles designed to let a person go as fast as possible with nothing but pedal power. One of these vectors was on display in the San Jose Museum of Technical Innovation for about 20 years. He and the friend soon left their jobs and together formed their own companies. The first was Versatron in 1980, and the second was SDG in 1995. Our guest is listed as an inventor or co-inventor on 35 U.S. and foreign patents. But defying the stereotype of those in the engineering profession, he has been an avid hockey player for over 55 years, loves to dance, earned a black belt in Kung Fu, was an award-winning rifle and pistol target shooter, lives in the woods in Geyserville, California, and has an avetic, non-dual view of life. His philosophy of life helped him survive a debilitating car accident, recover, and go on to invent a workstation that helps others with major back and neck injuries to continue being productive. Currently, the Chief Technical Officer, CTO, and one of the founders of Altwork, let's welcome John M. Spiker, or Spike, as his friends call him. Hi, Spike. Hello. How are you today? Doing great, thanks. Good, good. So, before we get to the meat of this, gotta know, what was your favorite Halloween costume? As an adult, maybe as a kid. 
probably Groucho Marx because I did a really good imitation. I even won a contest in a Groucho Marx uh, at, at a Halloween event once. I came as Groucho Marx and won a won a prize. Cool. When did this happen? <laughs> uh, probably about 1980. Okay. So I think you're an adult by then, right? Oh yeah. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. There's some things fun about being an adult, huh? <laughs> um, so how are you creating the life you want? Well, I think there's uh, multiple aspects to this question. Um, there's, there's work, there's physical health, there's psychological health, and then there's also relationships in our lives. So as far as work goes, uh, I've, you know, I've been in my own businesses now since I was 27. And uh, as a result, I've always inter worked on what I considered interesting projects. As a general rule, the, the businesses that we started were things that we knew something about and we were interested in. So um, I can say in general that as far as work goes in my life, that there's been very low percentage of the days that I've gone to work where I've thought, boy, I really don't want to go to work today. I've mostly been interested in my work. Um, yeah. It's a good place to be in. Uh, as far as the, like the physical health, um, basically, I, you know, I've been fortunate enough to stay well enough to be able to continue exercising pretty much my whole life. And I'm a big believer if you can find an um, style of exercise or a game that you enjoy uh, doing really well um, that uh, is also exercise that you'll you'll do a lot more exercise and so since I happen to really enjoy playing ice hockey I've been doing that now for pretty much since I was 10 years old um, as far as uh, like the psychological side of my life um, about 10 to 15 years ago I started working to heal any like childhood wounds that I might have had and to look into any limiting beliefs that I might have been taught as a child and those have you know I've been working on those and they you know generally have been a lot of healing has occurred there and as a result, it allows me to live uh, much more authentically and uh, much more honestly than than I did in my earlier days. Um, and as that is quite an ontic, yeah. yeah. And and as a result, I've also brought you know many loving people have entered my life, and so I feel like I have a lot of loving people around me. I know I've been privileged to be your friend for five or six years now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad about that. Thank you. Yeah. So everybody has inspirations. And what were the inspirations from, say, your childhood that helped you build uh, the life you have now? Uh, what was it like growing up? Was it in Ohio, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I'm from a little town in Ohio, about, I guess, about. Um, 8,000 people. Um, it just kind of, you know, when I think back at my hometown as I, as I perceived it then, it just seemed like everybody was kind of middle class, like the whole town. Um, you know, I went to school from, from kindergarten to 
graduating senior for the same people for 12 years. I think there were about 200 people in her class, in my class. Um, the town was basically peaceful and pretty much crime-free. Uh, I don't, I can't think of any serious crimes. I'm sure there were, but I can't think of any serious crimes that happened in my in my early years. Um, there were a couple of factories in the towns uh, where a lot of the people worked. A couple of big factories. One built bicycles. Uh, I think they built as many as 13,000 bicycles one day. Wow. At one point. And the other one built uh, furniture, a company named Merceman Furniture. They built all kinds of furniture for houses. Of course, it was uh, Ohio, so it was cold in the winter, hot in the summer. Um, the town was surrounded by farms. So most of the, or about half the people that I went to school with were, you know, lived on a farm. About half that lived in a town. Um, hunting and fishing was quite common. Um, it was a Bible Belt. You know, it was in the middle of the Bible Belt in many ways. Um, because of the, a lot of farmers out there, like, you know, I, I, I do notice one thing that's a big difference now. In, when I was in high school, if somebody had, like, brought, brought a shotgun to the school be, that they had gotten for Christmas or something, and they showed it to some people in the parking lot, nobody would have thought much of it. You know, that some teacher might have said, oh, we prefer you don't bring your gun. But that was about it. No, there wouldn't have been any deal about it whatsoever. And I see that as a big difference nowadays, you know. <laughs> so, but literally. So, so um, what did your dad do for a living? Uh, my dad uh, had a, had a, uh, he was, a, he was never a degreed engineer, but he was a very um, uh, accomplished mechanical designer. And so he had a small factory that he built uh, uh, machines that would dig ditches in the ground for, for farm drainage work. This is basically if you if you drain the water, it put tile in the ground to drain the water. So in, in in the Midwest, if you drain the water off the fields in the spring and in the fall, it get a longer growing season, and as a result, you could just about double the production of uh, of uh, crops on a field. Okay, so when you said your father had a small business, is that a two-person business? Oh no, he had like. I think he had about 50, most of my life, he had about 50 people working there. He sold it when I was about 12. Five, five zero people. And uh, then, yeah, about 50. Oh. And he sold it when I was about 12. And then he um, he uh, started another business, which was a machine shop specializing in uh, with numerically controlled lathes, or see what they call now. Now they call them CNC lathes, computer numerical control. They're, they're the first generation of machine tools that were controlled by computers rather than people turning cranks on the on the machine to move things around. Oh. So it sounds like your dad was one of the first people to influence you uh, in how to be an entrepreneur. Well, it turns out that entrepreneurship runs in my family and in my dad actually told me something one day that I remembered. He says, says, I can't, he says, John, I can't remember anybody born, any male born with the name Spiker that didn't have his own business. Now, in that, in those days, your own business was often a farm. So, for instance, my grandfather was a farmer. 
in Indiana, and okay. um, my uh, and the, the the Spiker family tends to have not a lot of children, so there weren't a whole lot of people that we could think of born with the name Spiker. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> but that, that's what he told me, you know. And he, and he was thinking back of his aunts and his uncles and his grandfather and his great grandfather. Uh, many of them, of course, were farmers. But I remember an, an uncle who had a a store in Portland, Indiana, where he uh, sold things. But he worked. He rewound electric motors in the back. And uh, of course, my uncle was in business with my father, building these ditching machines, machines to cut ditches in the ground. So it did seem to run in the family. Okay. It's nice to have that example in place of what it requires to be your own boss. Yeah. Um, So how did you decide to become an engineer? I mean, you said your dad was uh, an engineer of sorts in terms of what he did, but not his education. Correct. Uh, So what was your influence? Well, it was pretty obvious to everybody that I, uh, including me, that um, I guess I was too young to even really realize it, but I had a really natural talent for building things from the earliest ages. I mean, from the earliest ages I can remember, I was sawing wood up and hammering things together and making, you know, making things that look sort of like airplanes out of two by fours and, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, just, uh, you know, boxes and just uh, just all kinds of different projects I worked on it. Somewhere around the age of 12, I was able to graduate from working on wo- wooden things, which I had hand saws and such, to working on metal parts. Um, and uh, so I had this kind of natural talent. And, and I feel like I was a, very fortunate because I had a talent in an area where that I was both, that I was also interested and it was an area I could make a living at. And so when all three of those things add together, uh, uh, I consider a person, when that happens, to be lucky from the viewpoint of their, what they're going to do for a living. Because there's, there's a lot of people yeah. who, you know, they're really good at something, but they're not interested in it. Or they're really interested in something, but they're not really good at it. And, uh, or they're really good at something and they're really interested in it but they can't make a living at it. And a typical musician, or often a musician, would fall in that category. They're good at it, they love it, but it's really hard to make a living at it, or some other type of artist. So in my case, all three of those things lined up. So I've been in, you know, building, building stuff all my life. And then, of course, having yeah. that natural ability, I happen to be born into this family where it was encouraged and allowed to flourish because Dad had this factory and in that factory there was all kinds of metal fabrication equipment so uh, you know from an early age I was running a milling machine and a lathe I did welding now I remember reading something in your background about go-karts at Purdue yeah yeah Purdue I raced uh, Purdue has something called the Purdue Grand Prix which is a go-kart race um, that's it's actually highly competitive and it's somewhat modeled after the Indianapolis 500 in that it runs for something like, well, anyway, it's got 33 carts on a small track. Uh, it runs for about an hour and a half. And it's actually the largest paid spectator go-kart race in the world with 10,000 paid spectators. Most of them are students from your dorm or your fraternity or wherever you happen to live. <laughs> 
but it's, <laughs> but it's actually a, it was a, it's actually a pretty big event there. It's a big social event as well as a you know the, a lot of the engineers it produces a large engineering school, so a lot of engineers are involved and it's really fun. Yeah, and you built some of the go karts. Yeah, I built a cart for myself. I was one of the rare people that built the whole cart kind of from scratch. Uh, everybody else took a regular go kart, and you had to have a roll cage at that time. Uh, that was, and so they would take a regular cart and add the roll cage to it. I said, well, I don't. So the roll cage was so strong that you really didn't need the rest of the cart. So I just kind of built the roll cage as part of the cart. Okay. It was like, or probably actually, I put I kind of took a roll cage and added wheels. <laughs> And so, so I had a much lighter go-kart than everybody else. Plus, I was, at that time, I was significantly lighter even than I am now. And and because uh, I had some reason I lost some weight at that time. So I had about a, probably about a, a large weight advantage over the other guys. And so I was able to run faster. So about how much? Than on most. I mean, people can't see you, so they don't know how much you weigh. So uh, about how much do you think you weighed at the time? I actually weighed one one thirty one at the time, and I weigh one sixty now. So, and I'm not I don't look fat right now. <laughs> so, so, so I've had to look pretty skinny and bony then. <laughs> okay, so did you win in any of those races at, at Purdue? Actually, I took. Let's see, I won a lot of trophies. I won like the oh, desk. Let's see the. I won, uh, let's see, I took a fifth place trophy the first year. And in the same year, I took the, what was called the Cowderpinner Award, which was uh, having the most trouble during the race. I was in the pits like five times during, the, you know, I had a flat tire and I blew an engine. Well, I built a, I built a process, I built a system so I could change an engine out in about a minute and a half. So I blew an engine, I blew a tire and I had another tire problem. And I think I might've had some other problem. And even then, I ended up in fifth place. Uh, <laughs> and then I, I won the sportsmanship award one year. I won the engineering award. I think uh, three, two out of the three years. Um, in the last year I ran, which is the third year, I, I took the lead on the it's a 160 lap race. I took the lead on the 20th or lap or so, and I led to the lap 157. About three, 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 uh, three laps from the end, I was way, way ahead and. Uh, throttle cable broke on my cart and so i ended up ended up in like fourth place or something <laughs> so uh, okay yeah, so but i you know that was the year i was going to win if i was going to win it now didn't you also build a car yeah in high school late well my dad um built um cars street cars for fun as a hobby all his life and by build them, I mean he would like he would buy an engine, he'd buy some wheels, he'd buy some brakes, but he'd build the frame, he built the body, he pretty much built you know everything else, and so I grew up watching that, and he built uh, two or three cars before I was maybe a senior in high school, but when I was about a senior, I got a 427 Chevy for Christmas, and. Uh, uh, there was a company named Fiberfab that built uh, the GT40 replicas, four GT40 replicas, which are, um, which at that time uh, was the winner of Le Mans. And if actually this this most recent or this recent movie called Ford versus Ferrari. Yeah. So this this replica body that I got made out of fiberglass from a place in Cleveland um, looked like that car in the in the movie. 
And then I built a frame and I put the engine in the back actually sideways. I built a gearbox uh, to put the, I built a gearbox to put the engine in the back sideways. Fuel tank, front suspension, um, adapted some Corvette rear suspension, and uh, drove that car for like 20 years. <laughs> so I think I, I think I first drove it when I was about 18, and and I drove it till I was around 40. Wow, so. cool, very cool. Mm -hmm. So now you're a mechanical engineer. Are there other types of engineers? Yeah, there's lots of kinds of engineers. Um, it's like Pretty much everything you buy or see, any kind of product you see is manufactured, is either designed by an engineer or manufactured by an engineer. Okay, well, let's give it to the basics of engineering. <laughs> so, the, so, so anyway, like there's civil engineers, they build things like roads, bridges, like big buildings. Aeronautical engineers build things like airplanes or spacecraft, electrical engineers, computers tvs the, the power grid you know when you plug into the wall that's designed originally by electrical engineers um some some computer programmers call themselves software engineers so it's it could be considered a, its own specialty separate from engineering and maybe not um, that's helpful to know yeah but a lot of a lot of times software people will be, re be referred to as software engineers and, and it's actually like I've done a lot of programming myself um, in, as an engineer. Um, chemical engineers build, you know, plastics, um, you know, things like gasoline, oil, food processing is would be often done by a lot of chemical engineers. Things like, you know, something like paint or pretty much anything you'd buy at a drugstore, a hardware store. It's a liquid. So let me let me get this right straight. So the people who helped design the Twinkie were actually chemical engineers? It's quite possible. I mean, they're oh. probably, I mean, they're in that process of making Twinkies, which is a chemical process and just make any <laughs> yeah. food, like any food, like Cheerios, you name it. It's, it's, it's a process that involves, you know, we don't, people don't usually refer to the components of their food as the chemicals, but they are. I mean, in the broader sense of the word chemical, virtually everything is is a is a chemical so um okay okay i get it i get it but a twinkie does not so, look like anything that comes directly out of the ground it does not look like a piece of cauliflower so there's a difference between a farmer a farmer and a uh, and a chemical engineer <laughs> oh. No, yeah, but if you start mixing the the first of all, of course, the cauliflower is made from chemicals. You know, you can count. You know, there's ten thousand different chemicals in a piece of cauliflower, and so they're all called organic chemicals. Okay. But they're yeah, they're chemical. Okay, all right, okay, I get that. All right. So, what quali what qualifies you to be called a rocket scientist? Well, first of all, I don't usually refer to myself as a rocket scientist, but I actually have been. Um, so I've worked on d several parts of missiles over the years. Um, when I first got out of school at General Dynamics, I worked on the parts of the missile and the nose of the missile, which is 
which is the parts that can find or track a target. And in this case, those missiles were tracking other missiles or aircraft. And then um, on the missiles, there's usually some fins like aer aeronautical control surfaces or aero control surfaces. Uh, there's mechanisms that turn those control surfaces uh, so that the missile can steer itself through the air. And those mechanisms are called actuators. And so I was uh, I did a lot of work on on actuators to steer missile the, the fins on missiles. And then um, more recently, I've worked on uh, on the rocket motor nozzle. Okay, so we can't um, give any give away any on... state secrets here. So, Don't worry about that. So anyway, the the variable thrust rocket nozzles um, are used uh, basically when the missile is maneuvering. If a missile is maneuvering in space, it, it, the uh, variable rocket thrust rocket nozzles are required, and uh, these and these particular things were used to hopefully if somebody fires a nuclear warhead in the direction of the United States, uh, some of these variable thrust rocket nozzles would be part of a system that would be able to shoot that warhead down before that it got here. That would come in handy, yeah. I hope. It's, a, it's not an easy task. Yeah. Um, now, the businesses that you started, now it's three different businesses, but the first two i believe you started with um a partner named was his name al al what yeah the, the my original business partner that i met at general dynamics that we built the vectors with yeah was named was named al void um and uh unfortunately al died in uh 2011 and uh he had he got lung cancer he uh, he was never a smoker turns out that about 16% uh, of people who get lung cancer are people who never smoked before. Wow. So, and that, that turns out my sister actually has that right now. She never smoked either and has that, has lung cancer as well. Sorry. Mm -hmm. That's rough. Thank you. And so you and Al built um, Versatron? Yeah, first one was Versatron, and we, I think we started in about 1980. We grew that to about 100 people and sold that in 1995. And then, and then yeah. we um, started SDG and grew that to about 100 people and sold that in uh, 2005. And then that. So what were the products? Uh, um, infrared and visible uh, camera systems for reconnaissance and actuators the uh, actuators for the uh, uh, either um, missile fins or um, uh, uh, rocket nozzles okay and then in, okay then 2005 issues when we started altwork which is the new company that we're working on now with the with the chair so was that with um the same partner or well al, al died about the time we started that or when when that company was kind of getting underway so actually i misspoke there we started uh, alt work in about 2010 and al was sick at that time so i ended up uh, starting that business with his son who i'd known since he was 10 and he's now you know he's 30 years later so uh, um i had long 
long history with him and he had and I'm more of much more of a technical guy he's more of a management guy so together we complemented each other in that way that's cool and what's his name Che Voigt C-H-E-V-O-I-G-T Che Voigt okay so what so what's your project what's the the uh, product now um, the thing we build now is a uh, it's an it's a workstation that allows you to stand, set, or lay down when you run your computer. And and the, the reason that this exists is because in about in 2002, I was on 101 down in Petaluma and I got rear-ended. And uh, I ended up uh, for like four years, I really only got out of bed about four hours a day because I had a lot, had a lot of back pain. And I, and I, and I could only sit for short, short periods of time without a lot of pain. So early in that four-year period, I came up with like this simple wooden kind of a fixture that held my computer and my keyboard and stuff so that I could lay down on my back and run the computer. And that allowed me to keep working. And if I hadn't been able to, if I hadn't been able to kind of design and build that myself, I wouldn't have really I really wouldn't have been able to work it would have been a real problem but I was able to continue working especially since it was our my own company or we were starting the company at the time so I had flexibility of when I worked and stuff like that and then yeah that is the advantage of owning your own business yeah that that was the that was the second business SDG and then uh, um, eventually I ended up getting well enough to um, to actually play hockey again, which was a like almost like a miracle for me. I just never ever expected that, but um, but I've been playing now since uh, for like over ten years since I got better. Uh, but even though I got well enough, I could get out of bed for more than four hours a day. I still found myself always laying down when I ran my computer because it was so much more comfortable. And um, yeah. so then in about I guess about two thousand and 12 or so, I went to this Che Voigt, who's now my partner, and uh, I said, I, I told him I thought we could figure out a way that would allow people to either sit or lay down when they ran their computer. And that if we did that, if it was like me, there's a lot of people with back pain, and it would allow them to work uh, without a lot of pain. Yeah. And uh, it also, like in my case, it also allows me to work a full day and at the end of the day i'm not exhausted so that i then have the energy to go out and exercise and do something else in the evening rather than go home and just feel real tired and achy from sitting all day yeah so uh um so that was the basic idea and then uh, we started working on it and it's actually been a much bigger job than either of us would have imagined. Uh, so we spent like four years uh, building inc imp improve, ever-improving prototypes. So we'd build a prototype and we'd learn from it. And then we'd change it a little bit and we'd learn some more. And we built a whole new generation of prototype and we'd learn from that. So it was like a, it's been a big job to get to where we are now with the company. Yeah. yeah. Building new things, creating something new often takes more than what people or what we originally think they were. 
So you mind my asking, what were your injuries from the accident, the car accident? I just had a L4, L5 herniation. It's a, uh, the disc, yeah, the disc was torn between the, the, the vertebrae, and so it swells out and rubbed on the, some nerves, and so it was. You know, they, they the surgery was an alternative, but back surgeries of this type aren't aren't very successful. Um, they're about as successful as not having the surgery, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> and there's significant dangers. You have like a 10% chance of becoming a drug addict because of the painkillers. You have like a maybe a 5% chance of a failed, what's called a fusion, a failed fusion. And that's from and the surgery. That's a, that, that's just from the surgery. And that's a disaster if you have a failed fusion. And they have to do the second sur- same, same surgery all over again and hope it works this time. Hmm. So anyway, there's a lot of risk associated with fusion surgeries. And that's what they were recommending. And I'm happy it didn't it didn't happen. I'm happy I was able to somehow get better. Okay, so L4, L5 is about where in your back? Oh, low on your back. Low on your back, like yeah, it's about, above your uh, tailbone? Yeah, about maybe two or three inches above your tailbone. So what helped you to get better? I mean, obviously, uh, yeah, I, I've been to your house, so I've seen the contraption, the 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 first prototype contraption, um, as well as the the latest models. Um, what, in addition to being able to tweak your work schedule, what what what, what did you have to go through to heal yourself? Well, during that four-year period, I either I had a couple of rules. One of them is, if it hurts, don't do it. Uh, you know, if things made worse. Another one was uh, either be laying down or walking. So just standing or sitting was things I tried to avoid. So my neighbor had a driveway that was about, a, I don't know, it was about 400 foot of rise and maybe about a half a mile long. And so I'd walked up and down his driveway about five times a day for three or four years. I figured I'd, you know, I walked up and down his driveway. Out, I, don't know, I guess I could figure it here quickly. Uh, 1,500 times a year for four years, much as 5,000 times, um, which is lots more times than he's walking up and down his driveway, I'll guarantee it. <laughs> <laughs> so that was like the only exercise I could really do was walking, and that driveway was paved, and so I'd be out there, you know, in the rain, in the middle, you know, in the with my umbrella in the dark, walking up and down his driveway sometimes. I used to, I tried to walk during the day, but okay. sometimes I'd end up be pretty late before I got started. So yeah. And where you live is pretty hilly. I mean, we're not talking about flatland. No, it was a you know it was about a, at least four hundred. I'm gonna say at least three hundred feet of rise. Okay. So yeah. So you didn't have any professional help healing yourself? Yeah, I also did. Um, I did uh, at some point later. I, initially, I had some physical therapy, but um, actually, in many ways, it made it worse. And then eventually, though, I did get to a physical therapist who was better fitted and knew my body better. Yeah, um, I've had that experience. You, right. you, you can get some really good physical therapists, and you can get some that are not. <laughs> yeah, it's like engineers. There's better ones and worse ones. So anyway, I found happened to find one. Actually, the guy's a hockey player, and everybody on the hockey team all the all the hockey players in Santa Rosa would go to this guy, and uh, I'm happy to say that, that works. Guy's name is Jeff Latz. He's at Back to Golf Performance Fitness. He's the owner of the company, and 
and don't be just don't be dissuaded by the name they do all kinds of physical therapy they and they were had a good enough reputation that a, a surgical group um, of surgeons like five or six orthopedic surgeons actually asked them if they could all move into the same building together so when they sent people for physical physical therapy they wouldn't have to go outside of the building oh that's very cool yeah. right so i can highly recommend jeff and back to golf to anybody who needs it very cool very cool now part of your healing process was also your philosophy in life right well i do have a philosophy of life <laughs> whether I don't know if philosophy is quite the right word. Um, Spiritual. Yeah. So I follow what's called a non-dual teachers or non-dual path. And um, the goal of the non-dual teaching is is what the Buddha called awakening. And I guess the Hindus would call it enlightenment. Um, some Christians might know it as uh, what Paul called, I think, the peace that passes understanding. Um, in China, the Taoists would call it the Tao, experiencing the Tao. But anyway, it's that's the goal. And so, a non-dual awakening is not actually it's not actually a belief system or a philosophy. It's more like a realization. And this is these are words that talk about something that can't actually be described as I understand it from people who have actually really had this awakening but um, but there's some realization that there's nothing separate from spirit that there's only the one there's only spirit and, and everything is kind of spirit in motion and for me this is pretty true that everything is just life living itself that life lives and we watch. <laughs> so, so, so anyway, the as a general rule, the the non-dual teachers um, that I follow all will tell you or tell anybody who asks that that the words that they say aren't the truth itself, but the words are pointed to the truth, pointers toward the truth but that the truth itself is different from the pointer. And, and uh, so I've often heard uh, there's a Zen story where the, the Zen teacher stands in front of 100 students and it's night and he points his finger toward the full moon. And one of the students in that 100 sees the moon, but the other 99 see the finger. So uh. for the non-dual teacher, the teachings are the are the pointers. They're the finger, and the moon is the truth. And so we have to look past the teachings and past the words to find the truth that underlies, let's say, the universe with our existence. And it sounds um, Buddhist in a way. Uh, yeah, certainly the Buddha was taught that. Um, I remember a Buddhist advice. saying something in version that the teaching is like looking at the reflection of the moon in a body of water and the truth is the moon itself. Something like that. It's been a while since I've heard that one. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's in that range. Another one is 
you know, the, there's a, if you're walking on a road and you see a sign that points, you know, you come to an intersection and you don't know which way to go, and there's a sign that points left toward Rome, that the sign is very useful, that's the pointer, but it's really different than if you go to Rome and see Rome itself. So what can be spoken is the pointer, but it's very different from what's being spoken about. And what... It's kind of interesting. It's the difference between living life and talking about living life, like uh, dreaming a lot as opposed to accomplishing and doing a lot. And you certainly are a person who, who've done, who's done quite a few of the things that you've wanted to do in your life. Um, now I'm, I'm kind of wondering how exactly having this spiritual view helped you get through the the car accident, the the accident that influenced that kind of changed the direction of where your your career was going. Well, how did that philosophy help you get through the well, car accident? With with the wake, you know. Or did you have it at that time? Yeah, I had, I had, yeah, I had it. Um, um, I've been, I was fortunate enough to see that life happens, that life, as this what the Buddha would say, life is, has suffering, that, that life has ups and downs, um, and that yeah. this is the nature of life, to have ups and downs, and therefore, I didn't, I didn't have a lot of suffering over it. So I had pain, I had physical pain, but it's, but I've learned now for sure. And at that time that it's possible to have physical pain and not have a lot of suffering about it, not have the idea that things should be different, which is. So not too much of the why me's. Yeah. There's one source for me and everybody has a different view on this perhaps, but there's one story that is the source of all suffering. And that is, things should and be different. There's my dog again who. Yeah, there's my dog again who loves to Jonathan. participate in this event, <laughs> Shadow. But go ahead. So there's, as I say, and there's, there's for me, there's one story in a thousand different forms that is a source of all suffering, and that story is that um, that something should be different, but that that should be questioned whether something should be different or not. It's the nature, you know, for some reason, which we don't necessarily understand, life is the way it is. And for me to say that the, if there's a creator, whatever the creative force is behind this, this life made a mistake making life the way it is. It really takes a pretty big ego to make such a statement or have even have such a thought that somehow life should be different than the way it is, that I somehow know better than whatever created the, the 10 billion, or the billion stars in this galaxy and the billion galaxies in the universe, that I somehow know better that life should be different. That is a good way of putting it, yeah. It's a very good way of putting it. That um, we don't know the bigger scheme of things. Remember years ago, someone saying to me, I think it was a nutritionist actually, 
that life is like a tapestry, a um, the huge rugs that you, you would put on um, the walls of castles. Life is like a tapestry and each one of us is a thread in that tapestry. So we're so close that we can't see the picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the creator is actually weaving the tapestry together. Right. Yeah. And, and in the non-dual path, if you're if we're lucky, that individual view tends to get less important, and somehow another larger view becomes the view, becomes more real. So you're the chief technical officer of Altworks, the the company that's building these workstations. Yeah. What's a chief technical officer do? Well, normally, the normally the you probably said this. But. Chief technical officer of a company is in charge of all the technical development. So he like leads the technical developments in a company. And um, I mean, uh, in the classic technical startup, he's often one of the founders. So, you know, maybe in like my case, there's somebody who has an idea or an invention that he wants to develop, he wants to bring it to market. And so he'll start a company, uh, he'll be the chief technical officer if he's a technical guy. And then, or, and then he might bring in other talent, like people who are money people or management people or something like that. Because your partner is, is what's he's his title? He's chief executive officer, CEO. So he, he's more of a manager and a money guy. Okay. And I'm, and I'm more now, he's also an engineer and he's a good technical that guy too, but, but I'm more of a technical guy. He's much more of a manager than I. So that makes it kind of a team that covers a few more of the bases. And a team that understands each other's language. That, that's really helpful if, if your partner is also a mechanical engineer. Well, that and plus we had, you know, before we went into business, I met him when he was 10. Right. And so we went into business when he was 40. So we had a long, literally like a family history together. So we knew each other well. And yeah. It turns out that when people start companies, one of the primary things that sinks companies is is um, is uh, fighting between the partners. I, I can believe that. I get into so, some serious arguments uh, arguments with myself every once in a while. Yeah, I mean, okay. being an entrepreneur myself. <laughs> right. Okay. So we we the probability of us having that problem was much lower than than somebody who's only known each other for a year or two. Yeah, yeah. All that got worked out a long time ago between the two of you. Right. Yeah. Um. So basically, the chief technical officer is is the creative force, the creative mind, the creative. It, usually, in a technical company, not all technical, not all companies are really technically related. So there, you know, there's, you know, somebody might start a company to make a, a ice cream, and so it doesn't need a whole lot of technology in a company like that. It needs marketing and it and it needs uh money and it needs uh management and it needs facility and, and a chef and a chef and something like that right and yeah. they probably wouldn't even appoint okay. anybody called the All chief right. technical officer unless they were 
really uh, getting way well into the development. You know, they're five years in, they're selling lots of product, and and they need somebody to make sure that they control all their processes really well. Yeah, I wonder if they have a chief yeah, testing yeah, officer. Yeah, probably a CTO, huh? meeting officer, CEO. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay. So is there anything else you want to share with our audience? Well, let's see if you are interested in our, in our workstation, you can see it at uh, altwork.com. And if you scroll down the website, uh, I think it's called adjustments. There's a video. It's about three minutes long. It's called like adjustments or something along those lines. And you'll see all the different adjustments you, that you can make on the station and, um, and see how the station moves. It moves with your body. You know, when you lay when you lay back, the screen moves with you. The screen moves up. The keyboard moves up. If you go forward, you can move into a standing position. So you can see all that motions in that little video. Um, and that's you know, if you're interested, just check our website out. And you guys went viral when you first kind of. Did your public thing on social media? Yeah, some of our early, yeah, we did a, a Kickstarter, not Kickstarter, but a pre-order campaign, and one of our videos you know, got hundreds of thousands of views within days. Cool, and that was on Facebook. Um, or no, it was, yeah, I guess I don't know. Um, it was on, yeah, we published it through a variety of news outlets originally. And so it got distributed widely, um, both through news outlets and uh, also, it was, I'm sure it was on Facebook as well. We had a Facebook page. Okay. So it's been so yeah, altwork.com, A-L-T-W-O-R-K, A-L-T-W-O-R-K. Dot com. Right. Okay. Well, thank you for being on uh, our show today. You're welcome. And sharing your experience and uh, one thing I find very fascinating is how people there's there's we've already kind of dealt with this there's this kind of fantasy that to live the life you want is well you float on this pink cloud but that there are challenges even with the best of lives and the best of circumstances and thank you for sharing your experiences with us and uh yeah, you're welcome okay yeah, bye thank you you have been listening to creating the life you want a monthly podcast hosted by dr sonia m kelly psychologist spiritual healer author and founder of golden temple meditations dr kelly is available for video or telehealth psychotherapy sessions, as well as seeing clients in person in her California offices. Her audiobook, Meditative Visualization, How Two Minutes a Day Can Change Your Life, is available for purchase on Amazon, iTunes, Audible, cdbaby.com, and at her website, www.goldentemplemeditations.com. Dr. Kelly can be contacted via her email, Golden Temple Meditations at gmail.com. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast and will join us for next month's installment.